Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 11th of February, 2022. Um, this is number seven in our discussion of fatty acids. And finally, we get to spend most of the lecture on fatty acids. That makes me smile. Now, <clears throat> let's get started with where we left off last time. We were, <coughs> we were talking about the stereochoid desaturase enzyme. And I was telling you about the fact that this enzyme, is its activity, its expression, is associated with disease, both metabolic diseases such as diabetes and indeed associated inflammatory responses, but also cancer. And I think after I get through today's lecture, you'll see the association. So... With that in mind, it shouldn't be a surprise to you that if you see stereochoid desaturase increase in expression, it's often associated with diseases of the liver because, you know, the liver is particularly an organ that becomes uh, diseased after dyslipidemia or during the process of dyslipidemia in association with obesity. So one of the diseases that first comes up in the liver because of dyslipidemia is the NAFLD. We know that it's a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's a particular phenotype, and it's associated first with metabolic syndrome and then very often with obesity-linked type 2 diabetes. And in fact, I gave a series of lectures not that long ago on how NAFLD progresses to steatohepatitis, which is also known as NASH. And there you get, of course, because it's hepatitis, um, tremendous amount of inflammation and sort of a perisinusoidal and pericellular fibrosis. And this has a funny name or a nickname by surgeons. It's called the chicken wire fibrosis because that's what it looks like, apparently. <clears throat> now, how does steroid desaturase link up to these various pathophenotypes? And is it the monounsaturated fatty acids that are produced, or does it have something to do with the protein acting out of its enzymatic association? Now, you know, uh, if you listen to me for any length of time in authentic biochemistry or in my um, YouTube channel, or if you were uh, fortunate enough to hear me in lecture hall, that I've mentioned multiple times how proteins that can be enzymes in cells and characterized that way are often found derelict in duty and participating in activities such as transcription factor, such as adapter molecules for membrane lipid modification of receptors, such as proteins acting directly to dimerize or trimerize with other proteins in, say, the cytoplasm to redirect biochemical pathways. Yeah. So proteins, just because they're called or characterized as an enzyme, like the stereochoid desaturase, which we started all these lectures on, remember, some seven lectures ago, uh, as it turns out, <clears throat> these proteins can have multiple functions besides enzymatic. Or if they are enzymatic, sometimes they're doing uh, a duty that is not associated with their moniker. Okay. Now, uh, 
Remember that this short, this uh, stereochoidesaturase promotes a pathophysiological phenotype. And the first one that was noticed, this was in the animal models, but also in humans, is fatty deposition within hepatocytes. And this becomes associated then with M1 macrophage activation. And you get from that an activation of what are known as hepatic stellate cells. Indeed, the stereochoidesaturase seems to have a very specific effect on this progression. And it ranges, as I said, from hepatic steatosis, that's lipid-associated inflammation in the, in the liver, to outright inflammation linked to fibrosis, and then onto hepatocellular carcinoma, right? And again, we, we spent many lectures on this. So as it turns out, the overexpression of stereochoidesaturase in humans does appear to be linked to hypertriacylglyceraldemia, atherosclerosis, and type 2 diabetes. And of course, that links directly up to metabolic syndrome, which includes hypertension, right? And problems with cardio. So all those diseases have hereditary influences. And so people have looked at genetic modifications, that is mutations, of a stereochoidesaturase gene. And they have found, at least in a couple of cases, where you have certain mutations that link to within the muscle now, familial combined hyperlipidemia. So that may sound a little bit curious, and it does. It should sound curious. Why does this enzyme have all these pleiotropic pathophysiological effects? Because it should just be an enzyme that's making monounsaturated fatty acids, primarily oleic acid and steroid. It's what's named after. But it will also be used to make palmitoleic acid from palmitate. And also moristoleic acid from moristic acid. Those are C14, C16, C18 fatty acids are all substrates as coasters for the stereochoidesaturase, but the sterate is the more prominent uh, substrate. It has a lower camphor sterate than it does moristate or palmitate. So just to back up a little, monounsaturated fatty acids, of course, are formed in mammals by a direct oxidative desaturation mechanism, which means basically you're removing two hydrogen atoms uh, in a preformed long chain fatty acid. And what happens after you remove those two hydrogen atoms is generate or introduce a double bond. So again, this is occurring on already formed long chain saturated fatty acids. So the oxygenase type of enzyme that we're talking about is found in the endoplasmic reticulum, very common in the liver, in the mammary, and also in the CNS, and in the testes and in adipose tissue. The delta-90 saturase is the predominant type of enzyme associated with the production of monoenoic fatty acids. So it's worth spending some time on, right? It could, it, it, some have argued that it's the exclusive uh, monoenoic fatty acid producing enzyme, but there has been some argument about that. 
uh, particularly within mitochondria, not in the ER. And I'll, I'll talk about that later if we need to. Not today, though. Anyways, for, more, for almost all tissues, between 14 and 18 carbon saturated fatty acids, as long as they're coesters, are active. Along with this desaturase, you have to have the reduced pyridine nucleotide. And of course, that's NADH being used, not NADPH. So the mechanism that we talked about at the beginning of these lectures, way back in number one, it actually consists of three protein components, an NADH cytochrome B5 reductase, the cytochrome B5 itself, and the desaturase domain. Um, and... There's some variation of this when you look at other animal models, but we don't need to talk about it. So you get an integral association of delta-90 saturase in the ER lumen, okay? And because of that, it took a long time to isolate it and examine, um, you know, at the protein chemistry level where the active center is and what is necessary for the enzyme to function. But eventually... Uh, clever biochemists using detergents generated a microsomal fraction. And what you found was an active center that is, apparently gets exposed to the cytosol, which means it's probably exposed to the lumen of the endoplasmic reticulum. And what it suggests is that you have an interaction uh, with, an ar with arginine and the arginine seems to have a role in the binding for the negatively charged CoA substrate. And there's also tyrosine residues in the protein that seem to chelate the iron group, which is no surprise. Okay. So anyways, it's been characterized also to show that in the catalytic domain, you have histidine residues. And that also makes sense. It's very common for this kind of hydrogen uh, abstraction from preformed molecules that have histidines. So you have this NADH cytochrome B5 reductase and cytochrome B5, and they can be solubilized away from the desaturase. The B5 has, of course, a hydrophilic region. Um, and there's also somewhat of a hydrophobic domain at the carboxy terminus. And this is basically where it fits into the membrane, obviously. And... If you do a stereochemical analysis, you find that D hydrogens at positions 9 and 10 of preformed steric acid, that's the main substrate, are removed in a concerted manner, and what's left behind is a cis double bond. Okay. Now, the intermediates do not involve an oxygen-containing um, molecule which is also not uncommon for these kinds of desaturases. So you can't find basically hydroxyacyl intermediates, okay? People have looked, they're not there. Because some, some have argued there should be, for mechanistic reasons. So the delta-9 desaturase is actually translated in the cytoplasm, on cytoplasmic polyribosomes, even though it ends up in the ER. And you get a post-translational binding of the iron, and after that, the protein gets inserted into the ER. All right. So a couple of interesting things. There's a dietary induction of the delta-9 CoA desaturase. And in that, in that particular enterprise, the transcript level increases 40 to 60-fold when you refeed a fasted mouse. Okay. 
So that's a tremendous super amplification of transcription or gene expression, right? And you see this occurring in induced differentiation of the pre-adipocytes in that mouse model. Also, I should mention there are at least two genes for SCD, uh, genes one and two, and they, they encode different isoforms of the delta-90 saturase, but they have a really high homology with one another, around 88%. But there is tissue zonation and specificity. So the liver exclusively expresses SCD1, okay, whereas the brain, the spleen, the heart, and lymphocytes express only saturase isoform 2. And you get both SCD1 and SCD2 in the other tissues, such as adipose, lung, and also in the renal system. So this gene has been studied in yeast, which is like used to be a model you carry out. I won't bore you with all the details about that. I will tell you that cyanide will completely inhibit the delta-90 saturase. This has been done with rat liver microsomes. Okay, so it's probably very likely cyanide would also destroy the activity of the uh, human saturase. I don't know if that's ever been done in vitro, uh, but there's no reason to believe it wouldn't happen. Right? Um, I can also mention to you that there are some very potent inhibitors in the enzyme besides um, cyanide. Of course, cyanide is just tanking that whole oxygen utilization. You need oxygen for the saturase, as you recall. So, um, interestingly, cyclopropanoid fatty acids, which are found in plants and plant seeds like cotton, okay, are very potent inhibitors of the delta-9 desaturase. So, any kind of derivative of these cyclopropanoids, so you have sterculial and malvolial-CoA. Those are 18 and car 16 carbon derivatives. And basically, you have not a double bond, but you have a cyclopropene ring uh, within that delta-9 position between 9 and 10 carbon. And boy, does that inhibit delta-9 desaturation. So if you, in fact, this has been studied in animal models, including uh, chickens. So when you feed them a meal containing cyclopropene fatty acids, they have a greatly diminished, as you might guess, 18 colon 1 to 18 colon 0 ratio. And that's found in the egg yolk. So cyclopropene fatty acids are used in vitro to differentially, differentially alter the delta-9 and then add in the opposition a delta-60 saturase activity to be able to just remove the delta-90 saturase and then study delta-60 saturase with preformed long-chain fatty acids, usually with already the double bonds that are, yeah, like in the essentials, right? in the essential fatty acids. So you don't have any competing Sub, uh, competing enzyme for substrates. Some of those substrates, of course, are going to be um, used by, by any desaturase enzyme. Now, I, I want to mention one more thing. There's an extreme response to dietary alteration. I've mentioned it already a little bit. Let's go into a little detail. This occurs with levels of uh, SCD1 and SCD2. And so it's a regulation at the transcriptional level, but also it appears that there's some regulation in transcript and protein stability. So when you do use rats, I told you we very seldom use rats, but some people use rats for feeding models. When rats are not fed 
for, let's say, 12 hours up to 72 hours, the liver delta 9 desaturase activity drops considerably to less than 5% of control. But after you refeed, that delta 9 desaturase activity increases um, at least twofold above normal. And the restoration is sometimes termed superinduction because the level of enzyme activity can be more than 100-fold above, let's say, a stationary fasting state, particularly when the rats are refed a fat-free diet, but high either, now this is very important for obesity in humans, carbohydrate or protein, which of course will generate depot fat. Yes, it will. So protein synthesis inhibitors and other kinds of immunological techniques were used to show that the synthesis of the saturase component is the one that gets altered quantitatively. So it's not the cytochrome B5 or the cytochrome B5 reductase, it's specifically the desaturase domain that you get the superinduction, which makes sense because those other two proteins would already be embedded in endogenous um, membranes for other activities associated with redox, right? Because that's cytochrome B5, cytochrome B5 reductase. You know that that's all over the map for redox reactions. So those would be more likely constitutive and it'd be the desaturase that would be amped up by this uh, refeeding with a super reduction, as it's called. Right? Uh, in contrast to the liver enzymes, it's sort of curious, the delta-90 saturase, remember that's just the SCD2 isoform, doesn't have any alteration in dietary uh, amplification. Now, again, that means that when, when a biochemist hears that, it means that the purpose of having different isoforms of this enzyme, steroid desaturase, is because they have different functions in different cells and different tissues and different organs. It doesn't mean they don't catalyze the same reaction. Don't get me wrong, although I mentioned and I did some great heralding comment about the fact that enzymes can act as uh, non-enzymatic players in biology, and I mentioned a few of those. Um, but it could mean that the regulation of the desaturase is unique for one thing, and the regulation being, of course, this refeeding phenomenon. The brain is not affected at all. In the liver, it's affected tremendously by superreduction. And that could be because, okay, you have allosteric control because you need a constitutive activity in the brain versus the gut or the stomach, and the because it happens also in the gut, but the reason, uh, I mean, the gut or the liver, but that's only perhaps a sequelae to the activation event, right? It's only because it's resulting in the fact that you have episodic dietary trends. So you have to do that super induction. But there could be other more um, interesting, I'll say at this point, in quotation marks, um, reasons for that kind of mechanistic control, even in the liver or the gut or the stomach, okay? Because this enzyme's distributed all over the place. So again, the brain desaturase is not affected by diet, okay? So again, it could mean also that the monounsaturated fatty acids that are made in the brain are used very specifically for some other um, downstream sequence event. And I can think of one, and that is the production of certain kind of glycosphingolipids, where we find either steric acid or oleic acid 
very specifically associated with certain wet sphingolipids, which of course play such a vital role in the central nervous system. In fact, this um, type two steroid saturate seemed to be very significant for brain development in mammals. So the brain delta 90 saturates activity is greatest during the perinatal and suckling phase in the animal models. And it's generally higher in activity than even that found in the liver. Okay. However, when the rats are weaned, the brain delta 90 saturates activity, the type 2, slowly decreases both in transcription, translation, and activation. Now, that's in contrast to those tremendous changes I talked about in the liver. But remember, that's the SCD1 isoform, not the SCD2 isoform. So that's something to do with the activation, but also something to do, obviously, with downstream sequelae, meaning what the function is of that enzyme. And I mentioned one possibility, because the one in the brain might be to serve only one specific function, and therefore is not dealing with tremendous increases in saturated fatty acids, which is what you get in the diet, right? You, You can get tremendous fluctuations either from de novo fatty acid synthesis in the liver coming from glucose and protein stores, right? Which happens all the time. You get a massive amount of triacyclosterol biosynthesis. Uh, you also get a massive amount of triacyclosterol biosynthesis in the adipose from glucose uptake, right? And in the skeletal muscle and in the cardium, right? But in the brain, it's different, right? Because you don't have all of this flux of fatty acid moving into the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. We've already talked about that. But you do have some de novo fatty acid synthesis, and you do have some lipid being transferred. So that means it's a very unique factorial function. That's how I would put it. So transcription of the SCD1 and SCD2 is regulated through specific elements in the promoter of the gene as you might guess, if you know anything about molecular genetics. And the differences in the promoter are the ones that drive tissue-specific expression, okay? Again, not a surprise, I suppose. The regulation of the SCD type 1 um, and, um, to some extent, SCD2 in response to cholesterol is through the binding of that transcription factor we've talked so much about, cell response element binding protein 1A or SREBP1A and another protein called nuclear factor Y. Both those proteins are necessary because for them to be a full-blown transcription factor, they have to heterodimerize. And then what you generate are three conceived regions within those two promoters. Yes, you do. With the dimerization of those two um, uh, uh, proteins, okay? And those proteins are, of course, transcription factors. Excuse me. The SREBP1A and the nuclear factor Y, those are transcription factors. So they're opening up a chromatin retailing specifically uh, because of those promoters. And because, uh, because they're on those promoters and because of the transcription factors opening up at those two domains. Now, addition of polyunsaturated fatty acids, this is also interesting, including 18 colon 2, which is linoleic acid, that's an essential, or its final massive distributed product, arachidonic acid, which is 20 colon 4, will decrease the level of stereochoidesaturase 1 and 2 at the transcript level, at the RNA level. 
Now, it's not clear if this is due to a decreased transcription or an increased transcript degradation, means la meaning lack of stability. So it could be both. It could be one or the other. It's just unclear. The data points in all three directions. So you, you, depending on what papers you're reading, um, you can be convinced it has to do with decreased transcription, increased RNA de degradation, or just simply an alteration in RNA stability, which means it moves in both directions, right? Right. So the protein itself, the saturated proteins, turn over rapidly. And that might be because you have to make up for the transcriptional response, which occurs so abundantly and with such high characteristic superinduction. So if the protein doesn't get eliminated, you might have excessive amount of protein. And remember, we talked about this in authentic biochemistry. What happens when you get a lot of protein? Even if the protein's a, a good protein for the cell, right? Those are proteinopathies. And proteinopathies are toxic to the cell. They can do things like initiate autophagy, but they can lead directly into apoptosis. Or if it's programmed inappropriately, it can lead to, yeah, ferritosis or pyrotosis. These are not good fates for cells, right? So an overabundance of any protein is dangerous. And if you have a superinduction of a transcript and you know you're going to translate that transcript into a protein, it's good to have high protein turnover so you can regulate the level of superinduction at the transcriptional level and not worry about controlling so much translation or post-translational modification. See, that's the way the, the, cell, the cell is efficient, if nothing else, right? Although, as I say, it's extremely complex because you, you have to look at everything. You have to measure everything to know what's happening in specific tissues. So in terms of hormonal regulation, delta-9-desaturase is, again, as you might guess, a plenum of flora detail. So when you look at the rat model that has a genetically predisposed form of diabetes, or you've made the rat diabetic by destroying the pancreatic beta cells, what you get ultimately is a depressed delta-9-desaturase activity in the liver but also in the mammary and the adipose tissue. And insulin tends to restore the activity in vivo, but it's not without effect in the activity itself, even when you isolate the protein. So that's curious. So the protein's responsive to insulin, both binding to its receptor and assuming that what's happening in vitro could happen in vivo, just the presence of insulin and the activity of the enzyme. So here you have a hormonal protein interaction, right? Which again, I told you in biochemistry, nothing surprises me because everything under the sun uh, can be found if you look careful enough. Now, <clears throat> insulin appears essential for the basal transcription of the type one isoform. And it markedly induces, of course, that makes sense because that's the ones in the liver, markedly induces transcription through a process requiring the synthesis of a protein regulator or other common motif in biochemistry. And so you get significant changes in cytochrome B5 and the reductase, but those are not elicited by the insulin. <clears throat> so the insulin elicits <coughs> the desaturase transcription, but the two other proteins that are necessary for the saturase to function, for example, in the ER, in the liver, those two proteins, nevertheless, are co-regulated, but just not by insulin. 
Okay. Again, another common motif in the regulation in biochemical systems. Other hormones and effectors are involved. Glucagon, cyclic A and P <clears throat> don't seem to be uh, involved. However, they don't alter the delta-90 saturase activity, but um, hormones like epinephrine and thyroxine do control the activity of the enzyme. So again, there's a lot of detail there. I'm going to leave you with that sort of good florid description of a prominent enzyme in lipid metabolism, the stereochoid desaturation. You heard a little bit about tissue distribution, activation, a little bit about the protein itself, uh, the transcript itself. We talked about hormonal regulation, lipid or, uh, modification and regulation. And again, we talked about metabolic zonation, right? All of which are really critical to understand that all important production of monoenoic fatty acids in various organs and humans and in mammals in general. So I'm going to stop here because it's Friday night and I've got something else to do. Plus it's, hey, it's almost 30 minutes and these anchor um, audio productions from Authentic Biochemistry go only give me 30 minutes. So Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, again on the 11th of February, 2022, from the in the Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA, saying bye for now.